2: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Hello there. Welcome to today's New Books in Education, one of the podcast channels in New Books Network. This is your host, Peng Fei Zhao, speaking to you from Gainesville, Florida. Our guest for today is Yi Lin Chang, Associate Professor of Sociology at National Zhengji University in Taiwan, the author of Study Gods. How the New Chinese Elite Prepare for Global Competition, published in 2022 by Princeton University Press. When a colleague of mine first introduced me E-lin's new book, I was very curious about its title, Study Gods, who are they? What stories do they have? And why are they called Study Gods? Yilin's book did not disappoint me at all. In fact, I was so impressed by her refreshing, extensive, and sophisticated description of the life of elite Chinese adolescents, some of whom were named "study God because of their effortless abilities to achieve high academic performance. Very few of us understand how elite individuals and families operate in everyday life to maintain their privileged status. Study Gauss offers a rare look into this issue. It is a book built on solid long-term ethnographic research. Today, I will be talking with Yilin on her new book. In what follows, you will be hearing not only her fascinating findings, on how Chinese elite youths achieve academic excellence and excel in a globalizing era, but also behind the scenes stories from a seasoned ethnographer, from how she interacted with these young people to why she thinks it is important to understand the world of the elites. Now, let's turn to Yilin. Hello, Yilin. Welcome Hi. to New Books in Education. Uh, first of all congratulations on publishing your new book oh thank you very much yeah it's wonderful um before we dive into the book would you like to say maybe just a few words about you your work what kind of work you do great um thanks hello everyone
2: my name is ilan chang i am a sociologist in taiwan my research focuses on education stratification and uh, intergenerational status transmission in Greater China, meaning China and Taiwan, basically. Um, I'm an ethnographer, but I also do some quantitative work. So within these uh research interests, I'm particularly uh interested in family background and cultural capital and how they shape students or children's educational outcomes. Is primarily among the elites.
1: Wonderful. Yeah, I'm sure we will talk different aspects of your work, Um, but now I can't wait to dive into the book itself. Um, I know from reading it, it is actually a crystallization of your multiple years of hard work, primarily ethnographic work. So I'm just curious to know a little bit about how you felt when you first saw the physical copy of the book
2: oh my god um (laughs) it was the best thing ever to have arrived in the mail seriously oh really wow yeah i got the book last year in 2022 that was exactly 10 years after i started the project so i started um i packed up and moved to china specifically beijing in 2012 started following students track them everywhere around the world. Um it was just incredibly nice to have the results of a decade of hard work to materialize. And of course, not to mention the book cover is quite sexy.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was really appealing. And I I I literally just, you know, dive into it right away after um Yale University, like the uh the press. I think it's a Chicago University Press Saturday. Oh, it's uh, Princeton. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. The, the Princeton University Press sent this copy to me. Um, you know, uh, too many ethnographic good books. <laughs> um well, maybe we can start it by um talking about some of the general ideas that you share um in the book. Uh what kind of story uh did you tell in this ethnographic research? Um, you mentioned you were following a group of elite students in uh, Beijing, China. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah tell us about, more about it. Great. Um, so, Study Gods is
2: basically a book about how elite students in China learn to achieve and how they justify their fantastic outcomes. <laughs> um, I primarily use ethnography or eight years of follow up. And also, I think, over 100 interviews. I stopped counting after 100. Um, this book shows that Chinese youth learn important lessons during their preparation for college um, in their, that, that will later on help their pursuit of elite status. So the three most important lessons are, first of all, they need to understand the status systems. So they need to recognize and acquire the characteristics that each status system values, and they need to avoid the characteristics that are not valued. Um, And then secondly, they need to have status-based behaviors, meaning that um, their daily interactions with peers, teachers, parents, basically everyone around them is guided by these uh, expectations and performances that are all surrounding status in school. And lastly, with the help of their resourceful parents, they need to learn how to use and uh, manipulate external assistance to face potential obstacles and failures, meaning that they really need to have backup plans at all times. And so um, in the follow-up, also in the book, I look at how these students hone these skills um, wherever they go as they head to colleges and careers around the world um, and how these uh, these these lessons have helped foster their relationships with colleagues, supervisors, and of course their parents over the years.
1: Well, interesting. So what are, like, who are these um, youths, these adolescents? How did you get to know them and how did you meet them? Can you say a little bit more about them? Yeah, sure. Um, I can't tell you exactly who they
2: are, of course. Oh, of um, course. <laughs> yes, students through, um, introduction of family friends into, uh, top high schools in Beijing. And so when I went to the schools, I had to meet with the principal or like a headmaster of the senior year, twelfth uh, graders, and then um, I would explain my research agenda, what I'm trying to look at, and then they would assign me to certain classrooms upon the teacher's consent. And then I could go into the classrooms and um, meet these students. So I met them basically by being a researcher, but they usually call me a big sister because I went to school with them for a year and a half um, I met them in the mornings and stayed up all night with them. Um, we went to lunch, we shared meals, um, we talked about exams, we talked about basically everything in life. Uh, that was very intensive fieldwork during those days.
1: Wow, indeed. So you also mentioned the importance of status. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit more. What kind of statuses in their life, for example, or... Um, if they move up from you know high school to college, and then if they left their um college, yeah you know, move to a work setting, what does that mean to navigate these different types of standards standards systems?
2: Wow, this is a really good question. It's also a big one. So oh, sure. <laughs> I think there are. State of systems everywhere. Just um, and in every system, there are people who have, who occupy the top notch, the top group, and there are people who are not among the top group. So, elite really is meaning, uh, people who are perhaps top ten percent, top five percent, or even top one percent in any uh society or in any social group. The elites in my study or in study gods is the high social economic status students, meaning that they come from very wealthy families. Um, so I primarily use a social economic definition of the elite. Um, these students are elite because they have wealthy parents who have top five percent income in all China. So. Um, And then they later on, after they go to work, since some are working now, um, they also have very high income themselves. Most of them working in the U.S. or U.K. have top 10 percent income by the age of 24. Those who are married have a combined family or household income that puts them in the top 1 percent in the American income bracket. And so uh, the definition of elite really is primarily based on money, I hate to say, but um, the ways that they achieve elite status is primarily uh, by getting very good education or like being enrolled or testing into top schools, top universities, uh, not just in China, but also around the world.
1: And that's why this ethnographic work is primarily based in schools.
2: Yes, because education is usually a very good way for the elites to maintain status, justifies their status outcomes.
1: Well, you know, then I would wonder why you want to study elites, for example. I wonder why it's important for us the uh maybe the bottom 98% or the bottom 99% of the whole population understands elite life and how they struggle or how they manage to stay um, at the very top of this social pyramid. Mm-hmm.
2: So I started wanting to look at the elites because there wasn't too much about them. In sociology, I read a lot about uh, the working class, the poor, um, and also there were a lot of, there are increasingly many studies about the middle class, but then there wasn't that many studies on elites. Um, one reason was because that scholars rarely get to go into elite spaces because, you know, we're not elite, we're not rich, we don't
1: earn that much. No, we're not, not at all.
2: <laughs> right. so. So I think this was a really a, a gap in the literature. If we wanted to understand society, everyone in society is part of society and this includes the elites. But then when I dived into the very small elite literature at the time, of course, it's expanding now, but at the time there weren't that many studies. And when I looked at all most of these studies, um, they were primarily focused on Western countries. And I looked at them and I watched, and I found that they were really interesting, but they didn't really speak to my understanding of the very wealthy, the affluent in uh, in Taiwan or in China or in East Asia are the ones that I know about. And so I thought I wanted to take uh, this perspective and apply it on a non-Western country and see um, whether we know whether the theories we know still hold. And while doing this research, I gradually came to realize that studying elites is actually incredibly important for social for social equality like the elites can uh change society in ways that the bottom 99% cannot they have greater say in a lot of economic policies and um, not to mention tax issues um they also are known to change the state of systems according to their uh according to their Interests. So, for example, if some people, so using the example of education is actually a really good example. Um, In the US, we know that elites have been changing the educational system. Um, At first, when universities in the Ivy Leagues admitted uh, students, they primarily admitted the elite class. Um, And then afterwards, um, other students, not of the WASP elites started getting admissions into these elite schools. So the elite class, the WASP elite class at the time, then changed the entire system of how admissions was to be conducted. Um, Instead of using test scores um, and then being um, like uh, out applied by the Jewish uh, community or Jewish students, they then decided on using the holistic student characteristics. As the primary way for defense uh, for 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 university admissions, um, and this is what we have right now. So American universities use a holistic admissions system, but exactly. that was actually yeah. used for the elites to send their children into these top-notch uh, universities, and so this is why I think elites matter we need to know about them what they're doing and what they're interested in and how especially how they justify and maintain their privilege around the world
1: well that makes so much sense to me i mean listened to me especially when you brought up the point about how the study of elites are primarily based on the studies conducted in western countries but We know little, very little about how elites, you know, they grew up maybe, or they managed to stay at the top 1% in non Western societies. Um, You know, I think in that sense, China has a very um, unique case because, you know, the group of young people you studied they have a life that is very different from their parents or grandparents. Um, for example, China has undergone this very radical social changes over the past several decades. And the way how their parents or grandparents led their life nowadays has been, I mean, or maybe already is uh, outdated from the newer generation's point of view. So I wonder if you would like to unpack a little bit about the intergenerational uh, differences here. And also, as you said, you know, the status about being what is counted as elite has been constantly changing in the Chinese context as well. Right.
2: So the the students in study gods are a unique generation, just as you said. Um, to me, these students are among the first generation in mainland China to have grown up in stable society without large-scale revolution, without- Exactly,
1: yeah. No famine, no war. And that was so, also what I was thinking about when I asked you this question. Because if you think about their parents and grandparents, they went through, you know, World War II or the Cultural Revolution or some other political movements.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So these students are really the first generation in mainland China to pursue status as a reproduction and not mobility. Um, their parents, um, as you said, Primary went through a cultural revolution, but they actually went to university after a cultural revolution, like in the early 80s. And so they are a generation that achieved upward mobility through education. And of course, their grandparents then went through the war, there was famine, they were not as well off as their as the parent generation. And the parents are now um, trying or doing whatever they can to make sure that their children does as well, at least as well as how they are doing. So this is a really interesting generation um, just by um, looking at their trajectories. But in, in addition, they're also part of the one uh, child policy generation. So in that case, um, as uh, at first of the one pile, I'm sorry, so let me try again, Um, as part of the one child policy, urban girls and boys sort of have achieved equivalent status because parents could no longer choose the gender of the child. And so these children are already in are born in the 90s. So their parents have only one child to invest in, and that is them. And so it's really interesting to see how these parents, who themselves were upwardly mobile, are doing whatever they can to um, pass down the privileges that they worked so hard for um, to the children's generation.
1: Well, that's that's very interesting because, like, that's also what I've been seeing. Well, I don't know if you have um, noticed that, but my own study uh, is about the older generation. It's about the generation who achieved the upward mobility. And then we are seeing how their children were doing right now. So we, we are like trying to depict this larger scale landscape uh, in terms of intergenerational differences in terms of these societal social statuses system. Um, I found what is appealing about the book is these back and forth actually, between the macro level analysis about the, you know all of these systems and then the very interpersonal level accounts of their peer relationship, their interactions at the schools. Oh, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that in terms maybe we can start from the peer relationship because the idea of study gods it's actually from how they call their peers, if they are superior, right? Yes. I should probably
2: define study gods. <laughs> so the definition of a study god, which is the literal translation of shen yes. is that these students are very high achieving. They get incredibly high test scores, but they don't seem to be working very hard. Yes, so these are considered like the geniuses of of the cohort or of the school, and students kind of worship them. Um, so in peer interactions, we see that. Um, let me give you an example. Um, uh, the the most example the, the example I like most is Claire. Claire is a study god. She is very very high performing. She. Um, doesn't really study that much. She had time to have a boyfriend. Um, she could do other things. Um, she was interested in a lot of things, but primarily she was the top performing student in the school. So people adored and worshiped Claire, they memorized her SAT score and her entire college application list. They knew what. Claire was up to, um, at what times, and they would not bother her if she showed any signs of distress. Basically, Claire was the star of the school. Um, and in contrast to her was her classmate, Brandon, who people also liked, but Brandon was not top performing. He was thus not a study god. Um, on the other hand, it's interesting to see that Brandon is more like a well, like a well-rounded person that American universities claim to like. Brandon is an athlete. He plays basketball very well. He is also a violin soloist who has performed in school concerts. Um, He is also a genuinely helpful classmate. He um, helps his friends or his classmates with homework whenever he can in the subjects that he is good in. But then taken together, his test scores were never up there. And so even though people liked Brandon, he was not a steady god. He was not worshipped. They didn't really care that much about what he did. They definitely did not follow him. They would never um, turn around to look at him if he passed through the hallways. But they would do so for Claire. And so this is not because Brandon is bad or anything. It's just that in my in my analysis, I find that this is primarily because Claire possessed the most important attribute in the status system, which was test scores, while Brandon did not. And so even with all the other characteristics that make him a wonderful friend, a nice person, he will not have high status because he did not possess that one important thing. And that was test scores.
1: The students also came up with different names for, um, you know, non study gods uh, students. Like they have another um, name, it's called mm-hmm. Xue, Xue ba, right? Xue Zha. Yes. Yeah. Huh. So yeah. I'm trying to bring up like... some of those terms that you introduced in the book.
2: Sure. So the hierarchy that I found in Chinese high schools was really a four-tier hierarchy. On the absolute top was the study gods, the people who don't really seem to be studying but have really high test scores. Um, the second group was called the study holics, which is a translation of Xueba. Study holics are students who study a lot. And they also have very high test scores. So together, study gods and study holics are the high-status groups in uh, Chinese high in the Chinese high schools that I went to. Moving on from the study holics is the underachievers, which is a translation of xue jia. Underachievers are students who don't seem to be studying, and also they don't have high test scores. Um, not having high test scores, in fact, means um, the bottom 50%. So that is a quite generous definition of low test scores. Um, but further below is the so-called losers. Um, students call these these students losers um, because they study a lot and yet they still don't have high test scores. So losers in Chinese would be 学书. And I have to say that I did not translate these terms. These terminologies came from the students themselves. And so I would not call anyone losers, of course, but the students did in daily conversation. Um, While the study gods really is a literal translation, because that's the best term that capture the essence of being of the top status in those high schools.
1: So now I'm trying to imagine, if I were one of those young people studying in one of those top-notch high schools in Beijing, how would I feel to navigate such a complex and clearly hierarchical system? How How did they feel? It was surprising for
2: me that everyone seemed to support the system regardless of where they were. I didn't think that they that the uh, non top non-study gods <laughs> would be motivated to support or sustain this hierarchy but in fact they were some of the most diligent supporters um they would correct other people for claiming status uh wrongfully and they are also uh all they they also try to sort me and like everyone who they know inside the status system so they were really adamant about it. Um, They would, especially for the underachievers, or the uh, 学家, they would try everything in their power to avoid falling down as a loser. So instead, of trying to change the SATA system. They join in bashing the losers whenever they get the chance. When losers show mistakes in class or in tests that are revealed in public, they are the first to jump and shame them in public. They are also the ones who tell me primarily to avoid talking to losers on campus. They also help identify out losers. Um, So this is really interesting. They don't really seek to change the system, but instead they uphold it um, by trying to maintain status. And for the study gods and the study-holics, of course, they have high status. I don't think there is strong motivation for them to change the status system. So they could go about life as they please. People bow down to their wishes, um, not just peers, but also teachers and their parents. So, of course, they would have a fantastic, fabulous time in high school. That is, of course, not counting for the fact that they are studying about 12 to 15 hours every single day on one exam that will sort of, they think will determine their future
0: prospects.
1: So, so that's very interesting that makes me think about you know why do you have any speculations about why the whole students body seem to support the system or because uh, like you know in some other studies conducted in China we would see um findings about say, subculture, like use subculture or youth rebellious culture, use counter mainstream cultural behaviors. And here it seems that everyone is very mainstream. Uh, so I wonder why, um, do you have any speculations on that?
2: Yeah, um, I have two speculations, two reasons of speculations. The first is that, um, in the more macro scale, these students are elite.
1: Yeah, so, I was thinking about this as well. Yeah, yeah. It is within
2: their interest to follow the um the the current norm in society, the hierarchies that they themselves, their parents' generation, have sustained. So for so in general, they would probably have not that much motivation to uh, change things to to their so-called benefits because in the grand scheme of things things are of their benefits and then when we zoom in into the schools i don't think they could have changed even if they wanted to because they are not the top status in school. They don't have that much power. They are still under the uh, sup- uh, the, the supervision of, stu- of of teachers. They still need to um, do as told most of the time. They need to prepare for the exam. They can't be frightening violent to other people um, or there will be consequences. Um, and when the entire school system And everything inside the campus is structured around test and test scores, more specifically. I think um, taken together, they decide to follow the rules by upholding status, knowing that in the future, other people will also uphold the status for them as they um, still get the chance to fight for elite status. After all, all of these students are in Top schools, they are all top performing. The lowest performers still go into very good universities.
1: Wow, very impressive. Now I wonder, what about those teachers? If there are clearly hierarchies and different statuses among students, how teachers, how do teachers support students from different statuses, for example, or... Would the students from a lower status receive enough support from teachers?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. So, um, the first thing I have to mention is that teachers don't have teachers have never acknowledged the student hierarchy. Yeah, (laughs) they don't call any student study gauze or anything. They don't use those terminologies at all. but their interactions are systematically different between the study gods, study holics, versus the um, underachievers and losers. So, teachers they have incentive to uphold um, the high performers as much as possible because there's performance pay. So, um, I think. It could be the number of students that go into a top university or the proportion of students in a classroom that go to a top university. But either way, performance pay could go as high as to more than their annual income, depending on the results. And so there is a very clear motivation that drives teachers to let the high performers stay as high performing as possible. And by doing this, if the high performers demand things, then they will usually bow down to that because it is in both of their interests to let them stay high performing. With regard to the low performers or the not so high performers, teachers, of course, as educators, they seem to be trying to support them in any ways possible. However, um, things don't really work out the way that they plan. For example, teachers could pay special attention to the low achievers. They could um, ask them more questions in class, make sure they're following um, and pay more attention to their incorrect test answers, trying to correct the problem and let them do better in the future tests. But for the low performers, this creates tremendous stress. And this kind of is often turned into public shaming events by the other higher performers. And so teachers with all their good intentions are turned into, um, I wouldn't say minions because they're really important, but they turn into other adults who sustain this really unequal status systems through these peer interactions and classroom interactions. Of course, then some teachers might say that, oh, in that case, they should probably secretly help out the uh, underachiever and losers. And some have. Um, In one rare case, one teacher uh, helped out a underachiever to apply for a certain grant or fellowship. Um, um, But of course, the student didn't get it. But the student was in tears whenever um, he thought about the teacher being willing to help him in such a way. And so that actually had a really good impact on him. He later studied really hard and achieved, approved, improved his test scores, moved up from the underachiever to the study holics, and then went to a very good uh, one of the top Chinese universities. Um, so but this is asking for a lot from the teachers to secretly or subtly help the underachiever and losers. Um, And of course, as educators, no teachers would say they'll just let the losers or underachievers fail, that's just not possible. Um, But unfortunately, sometimes when they decide that it's out of their hands or they are no longer able to help because these teenagers sometimes do have a very strong drive to go about on their own ways, In the unlikely event, although there are a few of them, um, then the teachers are forced to let go and let the students decide on their own what they want to do. Sometimes this doesn't have a very good uh, outcome. The students, one student was very headstrong. He decided on what he was, what schools he was going to apply for. His test scores, however, were never there, so in the end, he didn't get into any university and this was a top high school where usually the matriculation to university rates were at were, were basically 100%. Um I asked this teacher why did he let this happen because the teacher knew what the student was doing he knew that the college applications was problematic and the teacher's flat, the teacher basically he flatly blamed it on the student. He said that he's been trying to tell the student that his test scores weren't there, but the student never listened, um, implying that the student was headstrong and that um, it also sort of confirmed that the teacher didn't do much on trying to change the student's course, but not because he didn't want to, but because it was immensely difficult and he could not.
1: Well, it sounds very complex here, the relationship and, you know, Not every good intention may lead to the best result Mm -hmm. in reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then what about those parents? Because like in your book, it feels like the parents play an important role, very important role in shaping their children's future. And sometimes, you know, I can't help but wondering, are they all helicopter parents? That's a really interesting thought.
2: Um, The parents I found um, were all very devoted to their kids. Of course, just like the teachers, they never use these terminologies. They don't recognize a hierarchy because they don't really set foot in the campus anyway. But also in my observations, their interaction with their children also depended on test scores. And so... Of course, all of the parents want their children to do as good as well as possible on the exam or even in their applications to American universities. In doing that, just like the teachers, they have motivation to sustain the high performers. The high performers could ask for their parents' credit cards to go for online to make online purchases with no parental supervision. And that was fine. That was a considerable degree of freedom, not just in money, but also in other ways, such as. Um, when one of the high performing students uh, didn't do well on one test, she was really upset. And immediately the mom gave her a puppy that she had been asking for for years. So, this is yeah. a lot of hearing from the parents just to maintain uh, the, the children's stamina and stuff. Um, but then for the low achievers, their parents do a lot and try to amend the situation. They would try to help raise their children's test scores, such as by confiscating their phones, um, and demanding them to go to certain uh, certain tutoring um, for for SATs or other stuff, or that they have to be constantly under the parental watch on weekends. They need to be studying, right? And so this actually is the opposite of experiencing freedom. And so, of course, just like the teachers, the parents have the best uh, intention in mind. They are all, of course, thinking the best for their children, but not all of their uh, performances uh, were interpreted as kindly by the children. and so, just as you said, we see helicopter parents there. These are the very hands-on parents. But then in among these elite students, mostly they are the parents of uh, low performers. Because the high performers, parents would just let go and let live. And their children are doing very well. Yeah. So that's kind of like an interesting uh, small finding. Like the tiger mother phenomenon. That is also not very prevalent among the elite because the requirement for a mother to emerge as a tiger mother or even a tiger father, it has the premise that the student doesn't do really well in school. And so this is, I think this adds a little more um, nuance into the, the general finding of helicopter parenting or tiger mothering.
1: Indeed, and also says an interesting dialogue with you know the popular discourse maybe here in the United States about about uh, Asian parenting, for example, this idea of like Asian moms or Asian parents involved in intensive tiger mothering or tiger parenting. So that's mm-hmm. very interesting, a very interesting finding indeed. And so that makes me wonder, in terms of like the comparative person from a pers from a comparative perspective, what do you see as the similarities and differences if we compare those Chinese elite adolescents' their life with the lives of adolescent elites, maybe in Western countries, in developed countries. Do you have mm-hmm. anything you want to share with us about that? Sure. Um,
2: Just to say, but just be cautious about what I'm going to say, because everything I know about the Western elite teenagers come from literature <laughs> and um students on Penn campus. <laughs> so I think that their lives are definitely very different. Um, In America, at least, because of all the um, well-rounded, the the emphasis on well-roundedness, students could do a lot of things. Um, They could demonstrate talent in multiple areas, but also their life is very busy with multiple, with uh, juggling multiple activities. They need to do sports. They also need to participate in academics. They also need to do other arts and music. Um, And... So it's a lot of things that they need to do, and they only need to succeed in at least one. And so this is a sort of pressure for them. They're like busybodies going around in all sorts of directions, um, trying to figure out which one is the best for them and w- in which area they they do best. Life in China is very different from that. There is one singular focus, which is the test scores. If uh, students are going to a Chinese university, then it is the Gaokao test scores. If they're going to an American university, they focus on the SAT. Um, and if not the SAT currently, I'm suspecting that they would focus on their GPA. Um, they, believe that this sing- they, they believe that this single criterion is the most important thing to getting into university and then from there on building a rosy future. So with a single focus and versus the multiple focus, their lifestyles would be very different. Um, Chinese students learn to focus and concentrate on one thing since young, and they have the ability to concentrate on that one boring thing that sometimes they dislike, yet they have the power, the willpower to go through all of that hurdle just for even if they immensely dislike their lifestyle but then on the other hand they are only prepared for that one thing these students have learned piano violin and other sports activities or art um, before they were in high school but they all of them actually gave it up because they needed to focus on test scores So that is also a lost opportunity Like students could have been uh, multidimensional. They could have developed well-rounded personalities, but instead um, they focused on one thing. Of course, there's pros and cons for each, like uh, multidimensional talents versus the ability to strive through difficulty over long periods of time. I'm not sure which one is good, which one is bad, but it does create very different groups of teenagers. And it's interesting to see that how these teenagers will come into um, the same campus in the future or the same workplace and how they will compete against each other um, you know, as adults.
1: Right, indeed. So I wonder if you have any stories from their later life to share with us when they eventually graduated from their high school and when they entered maybe a elite university in the United States like Penn or um, finally entered their workplace to compete with global elites, elites mm-hmm. from other parts of the world. What does that look like for them?
2: Yeah, that is also uh, part of my interest um in 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 doing the multi-year follow-up with these students so when they went to universities it was really interesting Um, the first thing was those so um um 10 out of 28 students that i followed went to american or british universities primarily american so these students who went to american universities found themselves out competing american students in classroom, in, acad- in academics, of course, they're honed in academics. So they get straight A's, they're doing very well on campus, they're fulfilling a model minority stereotype very well. Um, and by then, they didn't need to change at all, because there were, first of all, enough of them to form a group. So they still thought that test scores were really good. Um, they sort of looked down on their American counterparts, because they were Higher performing than the Native American, uh, the local Americans, um, they would ask me questions or give comments such as, "Why are they not doing this? Why are the American students not doing as well? Isn't this their native language?" or things like that. Um, so they sort of stayed in the same. They sort of ha- maintained the same hierarchy among themselves, at least among the uh, Asian group, or uh, if not the Chinese group. The other students who stayed in China had a very different experience in the sense they were outcompeted by students who came from villages or, you know, uh, populous provinces. (laughs) And when these elites found themselves outcompeted academically, the exact same thing that we that I mentioned earlier in America, universities took place in China, they switched. The hierarchy. They decided that it was more important to enjoy life than to study all the time. And so during those four years of college, they moved the underachiever into high status and switched the study holics down because study holics didn't know how to enjoy life. They only knew how to study. And so the hierarchy changed because they were from Beijing, they were wealthy, they were the elite group um, also in Beijing universities. And then afterwards, when they when both groups graduated university, interestingly, most of them um, went to the U.S. or Britain for graduate school. And so when they went to the U.S. or Britain again, they immediately switched, uh, the students who came from China then immediately switched back to their old habit of using work performance or academic performance in graduate school as the main uh, as the main criterion to determining one's status in wherever hierarchy they are. If it was in graduate school, their performance. Um, if they were going for academia, they already knew how many papers <laughs> they submitted. Where it was important. <laughs> They were competing very well um on the other hand if the students went to work primarily they were in fields such as finance or in engineering they looked at work performance as the new test scores and so they would compete on who gets the best cases who brings in the most money for the company um, who can write the best codes or whose codes are finally used who can lead the group project Um, and importantly i thought this was all against the American ideal of a holistic personality or a well-rounded personess, the team player ideology. But oddly, they were doing very well in work and in graduate school, Uh, especially in work. I guess this is because supervisors in the end like employees who bring in the most revenue and who has the best work performance and these students because there's again a lot of them there's a sufficient number of them um they could team up and do group work and that also creates a great wonderful group dynamics because they're all competing with each other but in a friendly way and building each other up and so they are competing very well in in work and in, in workplaces against other nationals in the states my fear however is that um at around mid-career, they might not do as well because they might be very well, very good employees, bringing in revenues, um, taking on good cases, um, bringing in customers. But then at the mid-level, um, when they become supervisors, it's not just about that kind of work performance. It requires a lot of other characteristics, um, team teamwork, leadership, and the well-rounded personality might play a more important role. But... Um, Again, these students are just 25, 26 at the moment, so they're not there yet. So their future really, uh, what happens to their future really awaits, um, and I would be really interested in following them, um, even if not for research, then I could still look at how they're doing and how they should turn out.
1: Wow, that sounds so cool. And now I truly believe the importance of the multi-year follow-up part, because the story is so long. We want to hear the complete story. Um, with that said, I'm thinking about you know what about those geopolitical frictions between China and primarily the United States over the past few years, but also different parts of the Western countries. So the friction, the political friction, really has generated. You. Um, un- echoes and reactions on different levels. I'm wondering what you have seen from the these former students about their reaction, how they experienced that. Yeah.
2: So when they went to the U.S., that was in 2013 and 2014. That was before or around the time when um, U.S. limited student quota, student visa quotas for students in China. But it didn't say China at the time. It was primarily geared towards um, certain fields and subjects in which Chinese and Indians were the largest two groups. And so these students, who all of them who successfully went to the States, were essentially um, unaffected by that visa quota policy. Um, um, By the time that they were graduating in 2017 and 2018, America once again limited the H-1B quotas for work. And so these students, some of them narrowly escaped the um, decrease in quotas, in, in visa quotas. Others were not that uh, lucky. Those who are not that lucky then went to um, like uh, Columbia or New York University or Cornell, places like the or Harvard and MIT for a master's program. Um, they thought that they would avoid... The visa squeeze and maybe things will get better after two years or a year or so. Um and with a master's pro- master's, they might be, you know, more competitive on the labor market. Unfortunately, these students who went to the master's programs graduated in 2020 or 2021 during the pandemic.
1: Yes. So the nice. pandemic came.
2: So these the macro force in the world's trajectory were really against them. Um, all of them who went to master who went for master's programs in the u.s tried to stay in the u.s for work almost well very few of them succeeded almost all of them had to return to china um not just because the schools were shut at the time but also the like really high death rates um and then also along with that the visa quota never opened up either And so a lot of these students were forced to return to China. Well, a few of them got um, um, got 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 jobs, and even fewer of them decided to go to a PhD um, because they couldn't get a job. So
1: Um, a PhD in China?
2: uh, no, in the U.S. Oh, okay. Okay. Stay in the U.S. If they couldn't, they would go for further education. Mm -hmm. Um, only very few who decided not to. uh, I'm sorry. Only the very few did so, though. Um, most of the graduates at that cohort went back to China. Um, and when I follow that, when I in, not really interview, but I um, texted and messaged them or like zoomed them, um, most of them said that they still had plans to return to the U.S. after the pandemic is over. Um, none of them are as satisfied as their uh, with their jobs currently, um, but they're really happy that they have a job right now. And so um, when I asked how they're going to return to the US, most of them said, well, they can apply directly for uh, transfers within the company, hopefully, Um, if the if there's no such option, then they will have to apply for a PhD in a good university in the US. So again, they're using education as a way to maintain status, but also to keep themselves in the loop for global elite competition through education.
1: Well wow. walking walking against the wind is hard even for Elise it's still hard
2: yes. yes um covid was a real surprise for them
1: and for almost
2: all of us i think in the world
1: yeah, sure yes well Now I sort of want to shift the gear a little bit as we have talked a lot about their stories, and now I wonder if you could share a little bit about your own reflection about your story wisdom. I wonder, for example, if a novice researcher who is also very interested in working with elites or elite adolescents. What kind of advice would you give them nowadays? As you have finished the book and has maintained this long term relationship, I don't know how you would call it. If you would call it a friendship with your um, elite participants, uh huh. Um,
2: So for research purposes, I would advise them to be prepared. Be prepared for the kinds of surprisingly uh, different interaction styles that elites have versus the non-elites. If the researcher is non-elite, then yes, they they, they really absolutely have to be prepared. Um, at first, when I encountered these elite students, I felt that they were incredibly entitled. They made comments on my appearance. Um, they felt free to give suggestions on how to improve my body image um they also uh they also expected me to do a lot of things when they asked for of course this is the high performers um such as they expected that upon request i would take them to movies upon request i would buy them lunch or dinner at a restaurant of their decision um, and upon their request i would help them get into the University of Pennsylvania because I was a graduate student there. Um, Of course, this is incredible entitlement that basically um, had to be uh, adjusted for. Um, and of course, as a graduate student, I would never be able to help anyone get into <laughs> my university. That's just not how the way things work. Um, so it's it's kind of surprising on multiple levels: on the academic level, on the like uh, emotional level, and the psychological level. Um, studying elite young people requires a lot of self adjustments. But then I think um, the most important thing is to say stay interested and not be taken aback. By all of these surprising um entitlement or uh unpleasant or certain unpleasant interactions. Like um, I was really interested in them and I think they felt it. They felt that I was no threat. I was really just there to see how they were doing. And I think they appreciate it, especially uh teenagers. They appreciate people um putting them at the centerpiece of their of other people's lives. And for about eight to 10 years, these students were the center of my life. I followed them around the world. I uh, visited them in every single break that I had. My summers and winters and every other uh, vacations were all spent trying to contact them. Um, I remembered everything that I could about them. And so I think they do appreciate that a lot but then that of course is also based on the researchers very high emotional um, devotion to studying uh these elite young people so overall i think it's, it's it has been a pleasant journey and i think there really should be more people who follow uh elite adolescents or teenagers around um not if not just for research purposes um understanding how they are understanding what they're like I think is really important, um, not just for a broader understanding of how the world works, but also it helps us reflect on what we've done and what we could have done better um, if we were in that position.
1: Wow. That's such a strong commitment to your own work and to your participants as well. Thank you so much, Yilin, for sharing that with us. and. Now I come to almost at the end of my uh chat with you. I would like to ask what you're working on right now. Are you working on some new projects, starting a new ethnography, or still working with this group of young people? I would have loved to follow them, but
2: then um I started working, so and and also COVID broke out. So um that the study gods project has come to a full end. Um but I am currently studying starting another ethnography on how elite universities in Taiwan choose their uh, new new uh, new students. So essentially is a study about admissions. I would be uh, part of different committees on the admissions office in the admissions office, and I would look at how other officers or faculty who serve on this um, uh, team, uh, talk about students, discuss the student attributes and what they most uh what, what is the most important thing to them. So essentially it's shifting from the perspective of students, teachers, and parents to the perspective of the elite universities, the institutions. Um, primarily, what was driving this was that elite universities never say that we want students from you know, wealthy backgrounds. We don't ever say that. Of course, there's legacy admissions, but we don't say it because they have money. No, definitely not. Um, instead, we use a lot of terminology and vague ways to express who we want and what kind of students we like. All of them, uh, actually none of them are related to class. But in the end, every elite university takes in so many students from the wealthy upper classes. And so I would like to look at how this process unfolds by being on the admissions team. I'm really excited about that. My work has passed the uh, Institution Review Board for Human Subjects, Um,
1: and
2: And I've also gained um, permission to serve on two different admissions teams in two different universities. of course, that's also going to be labor intensive because they the only reason they allowed me to join them was because they didn't have enough faculty who could help out. <laughs> and so, and so yeah. I plan to devote um, perhaps the next few years, two or three, in gathering data about this um, admissions project. And then later on, hopefully, I can work on another book to. Um, to introduce how admissions actually work from also, again, a non-Western perspective.
1: Wow, that sounds another important study. And we look forward to having you back to talk about your new book, (laughs) the second book. Thank you. I hope so. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Yilin. And we have taken so much time from you today. Again, thank you uh, for sharing your wonderful study with us. We really appreciate that. All right. Thanks for inviting. It was great talking. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.